0: So, how do you think your parents describe what you do, <laughs> do to their <laughs> friends?
1: Oh, I. God. It's probably really, really bad, really wrong. Um, it's probably something like, she works at a. I think they know I work at a nonprofit, but they understand that. It's a start. Um, <laughs> and I think they would say something like, she does a lot of research and she, they. Uh, evaluate other um, charities or something like that they might get that far and that would be about it I think what about you
0: I think my dad says Chelsea
1: works at Charity Navigator (laughs) 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 Um, and they're really into bed nets (laughs) (laughs) yeah I don't think my parents even know what Charity Navigator is or you know like they don't even have like a framework for philanthropy in any way at all
0: Uh, actually (laughs) I started talking about like some of the stuff that we do to my family like just before I moved over here and I was like there was just a pull of like no one understanding like, did anyone click through on the website they're like oh it's just really long website we figured you'd tell us about it
2: anyway <laughs> cool let's get started all right welcome to the give all podcast GiveWell is a nonprofit dedicated to finding outstanding giving opportunities and publishing the full details of our analysis to help donors decide where to give. I'm Sean Conley, a research analyst here at GiveWell, and I'm here with two of GiveWell's newer research analysts, Sarah Ward. Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi.
2: And Chelsea Tebert. Uh, hi. Chelsea.
0: hi. <laughs> Happy to be here.
2: Glad to hear it. So, you both joined GiveWell in the last few months, I think December and January, right?
0: Yep. Uh, December. Yeah, I was in
1: January.
2: And so now it's April, so you've been here three or four months. And so today I wanted to talk with both of you about how you ended up working here at GiveWell and your experiences so far. Sounds good. So I guess we could start with, how did you both first hear about GiveWell?
0: Uh, for me, it was through colleagues at my master's program. So immediately before this, I was studying public policy in at Oxford University. And uh, a few of my colleagues were really into it. And so when I was sitting down to try and come up with a job that I thought would be a good thing to do, that was, I guess, at the forefront of my mind.
2: And did they specifically suggest... Did you hear about it in the context of them suggesting places for you to work? Or had they talked about it in other contexts?
0: Uh, I think it was chatted about when various people were like raising money for XYZ this came up and I had spoken a lot about like I had a friend that was into health systems, um, analysis. So we'd spoken a lot about like how to measure impact of various things and argued about that. And I found it difficult to like floor what GiveWell was doing. And one day my ex was just like, well,
1: why don't you just apply to work there? That seems like a good idea. (laughs)
2: Cool.
1: Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was, let's see, I was a lawyer at Microsoft um, before this, and I was sort of, you know, at a point where I wanted to do something different, but I didn't really, you know, I just didn't know what, like, there wasn't anything that really jumped out at me as the right next move, Um, and honestly, like, my job there was very comfortable, um, so, you know, there was nothing horrible about it, I just wasn't, I just didn't feel very fulfilled, and, um, uh, but, you know, I didn't want to be, like, a direct legal aid lawyer um, because it felt, like, too kind of direct, I guess, like, too individual-based, and I wanted to do something that would have a broader impact. Um, But I didn't want to do policy work for a variety of reasons that I think Chelsea um, talked about recently. Um, One of them was I didn't want to move to, like, D.C. or New York, but I also just didn't have, like, a particular, um, like... Area of interest that I wanted to dive into and specialize in and become like a policy expert in. Um, so that's kind of where I was at. And then um, I actually heard a Planet Money podcast about Give Directly. And I was like, oh, like that's really interesting. That is how charity should be done. And, you know, I'd never really been interested in like charitable giving um, because I just really didn't know where to give mm-hmm. and felt like I didn't have a good resource for where to give. So I think I looked give directly up, and I actually did not find GiveWell at that point, but um, maybe like a month later, my husband sent me an article from, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, and it was about earning to give, and it mentioned GiveWell, and um, he was like, maybe you should do this, like earn, earn to give, and maybe that'll be enough for your job to feel fulfilling. Um, and so I looked up GiveWell and started reading about it and, um, got sucked in and super interested in, um, what we do. And, uh, eventually, I think it took maybe, uh, six months to a year between then and when I actually applied for
2: this job. Wow. And so you were in that time, you were thinking about it or, or reading a little bit about it before coming to decide that you should apply.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I read the blog kind of obsessively, and like, <laughs> 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 um, and, then, and then I also read about, you know, from there, kind of learned about like effective altruism, and um, read one of Peter Singer's books, um, and started going to effective altruism meetups in Seattle, um, and then eventually, yeah, it just sort of seemed like um, GiveWell was the the right place within all of those, you know, uh, all of the options within, I guess, effective altruism.
2: I guess I should say for me, for for some context. I so I've been here just about three years now. Uh, although my story is a lot less interesting because I just came straight after college, and I think heard about it originally through the life you can save Peter Singer book, which we read in college, and then uh, applied here and have been here since. Basically, what, so what was the application process like for you guys? You just applied. I like called through the website right or, or emailed our jobs inbox or whatever and then i did
1: yeah did you uh
0: yeah it was some version of hi i'm chelsea give
1: me like a job <laughs> yeah i think at the time for me um there was something up about how give wasn't really hiring or was didn't really need anyone mm. at the moment um I mean, it was more polite than that, but but yeah, along those lines, like we've been hiring a lot lately. We're kind of, we're not in a freeze, but we're not really actively looking for anyone. So I was like, well, this isn't going to go anywhere, but you know, why not?
0: Uh, Similar. And then actually when it came to the point of doing my trial work, I was like, look, I'm going on vacation for like two weeks, so could I do like... Five hours now, an hour and then another five hours when it's convenient to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's the trial work that's where we gave you a remote assignment to do, right, as part of the application process? Yeah. That's what you mean?
0: And actually, part of what I was doing there has turned into my uh, overwhelming work project at the moment, namely an intervention report on voluntary medical male circumcision to reduce the risk of HIV. Oh, wow.
1: That's cool. So that was your trial project?
0: Uh, part of, yeah. Oh,
1: um, but I didn't realize that. And
0: then, like, when I started, I kind of continued doing that. And then one day Josh was like, wow, this kind of looks a little better than... Josh Rosenberg, uh, senior research analyst and my manager, than we thought. So maybe you should just make this your everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was. And Great. then it was <laughs> and continues to be. But maybe this week we'll publish
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, let's let's come back to that because I want to talk more about about that project and, and what you do. Um in a bit, but first I'm curious for both of you, uh, when you, you know, then got the offer, was it a tough decision?
1: Um, for me, let's see, it was not. I mean, I, I really wasn't thinking about, I, I didn't, you know, apply it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the only thing that really seemed compelling to me um, for leaving my other job. So, um, it, you know, there was some question about, like, um, working remotely because I live in Seattle um, and whether or not that would work out and that kind of thing but generally no I was thrilled to get the offer and it was you know pretty much knew I would take it as long as it would pay something <laughs> <that> I <it> could <laughs> live on um, at that point yeah
0: I it was a little harder for me so I had a um, a fully funded masters place uh, at Oxford to do another social science masters after I was done with Public policy and I had a house, a whole kind of life there that I was really enjoying. Um, and then I was, and, but I was going through this application process and was really excited about it. Uh, and one night I was at the pub at a Jamaican pub called High Lows and my friends were all like, look, this makes no sense. If you found something that you're really excited about doing, just go do that rather than, uh, treading water here with us. And I was like, yeah. I think I'm going to do that. And then the next day, Ellie offered me the job, and I took it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess it's you, you two sort of had an opposite experience, which is uh, you're in Seattle, and you come down here to the office every few weeks, but are based in Seattle, so you didn't have to uproot your life. Right. Whereas You were living in another country, England, and are from, from another Australia. country, Australia, and had to move to really up- change everything and move to the U.S. To, to do it. So I suppose you both ended up here through pretty different uh, decisions, different types of decisions.
0: Uh, it's working out pretty well so far. So.
2: <laughs> Glad to hear it.
1: Yeah, and it's working out well for me too, for the most part. I mean, I actually I would rather be here, um, just so I could be in the office more and see people more. Um, but because of personal circumstances, my husband's company, we can't move right now. Um, but you know, in a couple of years, it's a possibility. Oh so, great! Yeah.
2: How has it How has it been being remote?
1: Um, I mean, overall, it's been a lot better than I thought it might be, actually. Yeah, it's been pretty smooth. I mean, I have a desk and a co-working space in Seattle, and I go there every day, um, so I'm around a bunch of working people, which feels better than being, like, tucked away in a little room in my house, um, and, yeah, I come down probably every three to four weeks, so I feel like I'm, it's enough to develop relationships, um. In person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, overall it's been good.
2: Great. Yeah.
1: We also have the robot where
0: you can beam in. The- <laughs> I don't love to the robot.
1: I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, like Tim uh, is always like, what, uh, Are you going to robot in for this meeting? And I'm like, No, and he's so all disappointed.
2: <laughs> like, so, we should, explain, sad face. <laughs> we should explain the robot, which is the, one of those things you see on TV of a Skype screen on wheels that. You can drive around yourself.
1: Yeah, it's basically an iPad on a stand, on wheels, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not an iPad. But... And,
2: and I suppose you prefer it over it nothing. It itself.
1: I mean, I think we should. <laughs> it's, <laughs> so we to its, yes, it's very fancy. We don't to its features. it's very fancy.
2: So, do you like it more than nothing, or is it just as good as calling into meetings?
1: I I do like it as an option, and I use it. Like, I think it's good for small meetings actually with small groups or but one-on-one it just feels like uh this extra step it takes a little extra time and it doesn't feel worth it yeah um, because we can just get on skype and it feels about the same right to me at least so um yeah it's a nice option but i don't adore it <laughs> um but yeah tim really loves it and like wants me to love it <laughs> so, yeah, tim is our senior is operations
0: it. analyst and when he really um, loves something he really loves it.
2: (laughs) So other than, other than the fact that there is a robot here that, that rolls around the office, has there been anything else surprising to you, especially, uh, like compared to your impressions of GiveWell from working here? So something that's been
1: pleasantly surprising for me is that, um, I guess one of my, like, Fears before I came here was that everyone would be very serious and very intense, and people are intense and can be very serious, obviously. But Mm -hmm. everyone also has a sense of humor and is very welcoming and friendly, and um, you know, so I was delighted to find that Mm -hmm. when I arrived. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's not there's not a ton of humor conveyed on our or lightheartedness conveyed on our website.
1: No, although Holden tried on April Fool's Day. Yeah. But. Received well by some, received poorly by others. <laughs> <or> very <laughs> poorly by others. But I guess that's what happens with April Fool's jokes. Yep.
0: Uh, for me, I was surprised by how quiet um, the office was. Hmm. Uh, people, I think, yeah, are just really committed to getting all of their work done and are perhaps naturally introverted. I had a friend come to um, a happy hour. I was like, how would you describe my colleagues? And like, mm. A bunch of really nice, really kind Nerds, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think part of that is just like finding a place within the organization.
1: So I feel that a lot less um, now than when I started. Yeah, I think part of that too is that we have an open floor plan, and so in a way, it, it, I think that makes people talk less because they don't want to, you know, bother anyone around them. So everyone tries to be really quiet to be respectful. Yeah, um, and I and like I like the open open floor plan, but I think that's maybe the downside of it
2: yeah when i started i was the seventh person i think and then we pretty quickly grew to 11 this is three years ago and the i think initially it was more talkative because there were fewer people you felt like you're interrupting Mm -hmm. and then when we grew to 11 and then 15 18 it started to feel like you were interrupting more people so it it got quiet a lot quieter i think it's picked up a little bit uh partly due to conscious effort and partly due to Separating separate sections for people who want to be talking and people who don't want to be. But yeah. the, the fact that even the talking section uh, is especially quiet, it tells <laughs> you a lot about the office environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, in my co working space, it's much noisier um, because a lot of people just take phone calls right at their desks. Oh, well. um, Which people do not do here, from what I've seen. No. Yeah.
2: No, basically not at all. Yeah. I think something that was surprising to me when I first joined was. Just how skeptical of things we are. I think uh, Natalie, who's senior research analyst here, put it well. Was that when she left in college, she had the impression you just needed to find an expert or a study that said something and then you know believe that thing and then go from there. Whereas here we look really closely at every study. We look really closely at what people are saying. And so I think when I started writing reports, I would find oh here's some studies that say this and Uh, And we'd be like, are you, you know, have you looked at the the details yet? Have you looked at the methodology? And just was surprised, really the extreme of how skeptical of a lens we try to take to everything that we examine.
1: Yeah, it is very impressive and um, a little intimidating at first, I think, you know, because um, you have to be so incredibly thorough for it to be good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And coming from uh, the legal profession where, you know, obviously you have to be thorough, but... There's definitely a sense of, like, getting the deal done Mm -hmm. or, you know, winning the case. And it doesn't really matter if, you know, every single detail is perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas here, it really does matter. And we do look at every single detail. (laughs) And every once in a while, I find myself saying, you know, to my husband or something, like, like, isn't 90% good (laughs) enough? Like, (laughs) but no, it's not. (laughs) I
0: find that trying to, uh, like... I find that particularly um, pointy when we're trying to model particular interventions. Uh, so my manager is Josh and I'll be like, look, I just don't know what the connection to like this or that is. And spent like two hours on Google Scholar and I'm fairly confident that like no one in the medical profession knows. He's like, well, what are we going to do? Because we've got to do something. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but then it's like really fun to sit on it for a few weeks and then together kind of come up with
1: something.
2: Yeah.
0: And a way to justify it.
1: So another thing that's sort of surprised me was, um, or I don't know if it's really a surprise, but I think is really good about GiveWell is that um, we are con- always open to, like, questioning everything. So you know, we recommend these charities. Um, we've recommended the same charities for a couple of years now in a row, but that's certainly not a given going forward. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're always looking for new evidence and open to changing our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that.
0: And I think you feel that
1: in the office culture as well. Like,
0: uh, things I really like about GiveWell, uh, we have a like, an open task in our project management software where people can just log any issue that they have and the CEO pays attention to it Uh, and that people are really open to feedback and conceive of feedback as, um, like, a way to improve and, like, are thankful for it rather than, um, you know, the impression that you should kind of just bottle everything up and get on with the job. Uh, And even having been here four months, it's nice to see that, like, I've made some suggestions that have either, like, been adopted or... um, been rejected for like completely reasonable reasons Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i really appreciate that and i like i get told that my ideas are bad like with some regularity uh and with good reason and i'm much happier that we have a culture like that where you're getting honest feedback and then i you know come up with a different idea that's that's better and i you know hopefully i'm coming up with, with good ideas too um rather than someone you know trying to like acknowledge the idea but but Playing it off and just making sure nothing happens without ever telling me directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's really valuable, and it's generally you know delivered professionally and, and delivered well. So I never take it too personally, um, and I think that's that's something really valuable.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of you know negative feedback is always delivered in a way that makes you feel like you can raise feedback <laughs> again in the future. You know, it's not like you get shot down and you feel like you can speak up in the future, yep. which is great.
2: So what are you both working on? these days? And and I guess kind of what have you worked on in in your first few months?
0: Uh, So I've kind of ended up sitting on the intervention report side of things. So looking at um, programs charities might run and trying to decide what we think of them in advance of seeking out um, potential future top charities. Mm -hmm. So as I was saying, I've worked on a report about voluntary medical male circumcision, which is uh, a method of um, decreasing HIV and cervical cancer incidence. I've also been doing a lot of research on uh, insecticide resistance, which is um, which might affect our how we conceive of how cost-effective bed nets are, and then AMF, um, and finally looking at uh, iron fortification as part of micronutrients. So all fairly similar stuff, but mm. really exciting. And so that's either uh, looking at studies and deciding what our view of how strong the evidence is and how cost-effective it is, and then in areas where we don't feel so sure, seeking out experts that we think we can trust and um, having a conversation with them.
2: And so what are those, those three things? So voluntary male circumcision is uh, the program is you could go somewhere and offer people, like a charity could provide free circumcisions and offer them to people who want them. And some studies show that this reduces HIV transmission
0: by sixty percent, which is huge. Wow! Uh, So it's potentially um, in areas where, like, where HIV is endemic and where um, it's a heterosexual um, sex is driving the epidemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, The yeah, the risk ratio like your risk of acquiring HIV if you're a circumcised man drops by
2: 60%. And so the questions you're thinking about there are things like, are these studies legitimate? They, is there enough, are there enough studies? Are they strong enough? Do they have, you know, big enough sample sizes with apply in other places? Those All of that.
0: Of and then we're also thinking, like, could a charity really implement this in a cost-effective way? Or do they need to spend a lot of money that isn't being pressed in getting people to come and get mm-hmm. circumcised? Like, how acceptable is that in different cultures? Or... The opposite is it that um, there's so much like it's so well proven that other donors are filling the room for more funding. Yeah,
2: and so space. there isn't anywhere where this isn't really happening. There, if that was true, there might not be places where this wasn't already happening that a trade could go. Correct. And so we're trying to figure that out. And then in insecticide resistance. Uh, so the- actually,
1: I have a question about the cervical. Yeah. cervical cancer first. So is the evidence for prevention of cerv- cervical cancer? Um, you know, based on circumcision circumcision as strong as it is for HIV transmission? Uh,
0: definitely not. So uh, circumcision, there's strong evidence that circumcision reduces the chances that men will acquire an infection. And then there is one fairly recent, fairly good trial that uh, shows that the female partners of circumcised men will also naturally get less HPV, um, human papillomavirus, which is... The precursor to cervical cancer, but unlike with the other trials, we're not sort of, we don't have a trial where it's like circumc- circumcision is the intervention and then the outcome is less HIV. We have circumcision is the intervention, the outcome is like maybe less HPV for women, and then further along the chain is cervical cancer. So mm-hmm. um, we had to think a lot about how we were going to model that um, that connection.
2: Right. And so that and that's <laughs> a preview of something we hopefully will publish our full report on. In the next Very few weeks, maybe?
0: Uh, next few weeks, I think. Okay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> be realistic. We've got to get through all of
2: the details, <laughs> like we mentioned. Yes. And then, so the other, uh, quickly, the other two things you mentioned. So, insecticide resistance is this idea that the top charity we currently recommend is our number one. The Against Malaria Foundation provides bed nets, which kill mosquitoes and, and protect people from getting bitten by mosquitoes to prevent the spread of malaria. But uh, because the insecticide on the bed nets, kills mosquitoes, it's possible that mosquitoes are developing resistance to the insecticide. And so the question is, how big of a problem is this for the nets? And does it make the nets significantly less, less effective in a way that we should be worried about? And so what is that? What are you working on with that?
0: Uh, so specifically looking at uh, what evidence there is that mosquitoes are becoming resistant. So uh, for that, is it's a lot of entomological evidence where you essentially... Put a bunch of mosquitoes that have been bred to be standardised, that like that are captured in particular areas, next to a bed net and see if they die. And fewer. Once upon a time, 100% of them would die. Now, um, in some areas, fewer than 50% of them will die, which makes you quite frightened um, that malarial control will start to fail. And then, looking for studies where you actually connect. uh, All right, so in this place where we know that there's some kind of resistant mosquito. Uh, what are the what are what is the malarial case data um, but the evidence is quite complicated because it's not ethical to not give people bed nets because bed nets are known to be protective so uh, essentially I've been trying to find ways to think about the problem that don't involve what you what give or would standardly look for which is like all right well you give people a bed net no, you've got a set of controls that don't have bed nets what's the was the measure.
2: Right, because the, the one direct way you could answer this question is, test out the bed nets by giving some people some and other people none, and see if bed nets still work and, and save more lives or prevent more cases of malaria than not giving them. But because it's established that bed nets do save lives, it would be, it's considered unethical to run a study where you're not giving bed nets to group people just to test something else out against it. And, and so even it
1: isn't it also considered unethical to give some one group non-insecticide-treated bed nets and the other group mm-hmm. treated? Yeah. Yes, and that's
0: created a real problem for the malarial community in that everyone knows that insecticide resistance is increasing. People are worried about it, but uh, it's so difficult to test out, uh, to, to understand the scope of the problem
1: if you can't test it against controls. Yep. And then is this another question, you know, whether or not we should recommend or donors should support, like, research into developing new insecticides and, you know, whether there's really any room for more funding there or traction there as far as... Yeah, so
0: we've looked a lot into that as well. And the IVCC, which is the International Vector Control Coalition or Consortium, uh, (laughs) is (laughs) largely funded, is completely funded by the Gates Uh, Foundation, but the problem is so there's only one type of insecticide that um, is approved for use in impregnating a bed net uh, because of public health reasons and that sort of thing. And so, what really needs to happen is to develop a new insecticide uh, so that mosquitoes won't be resistant to it. (laughs) Uh, But that's some time away. So, uh, in the meantime, the question is should we be switching to other control mechanisms or not?
2: And then the, the third thing you mentioned, which is a lot broader, is iron fortification, which is this idea of if we put iron into into food, you could put you could require wheat manufacturers, say, or flour manufacturers to put it into the flour, and then you would increase iron levels in the population. And so the question is, is this improve, would this improve people's health, improve their lives in a significant way, and would that be cost effective? And so I think you're just looking at the program writ large, and trying to figure out whether it would be the type of program we'd want to recommend. Is that right? Uh,
0: that's exactly correct. Uh, and then what's cool about that is that there are there's a disparate set of benefits. So it benefits uh, children and their cognitive development. It benefits pregnant mothers in terms of avoiding preterm babies. Uh, and it benefits adults in terms of their overall energy. So it's trying to like think about all of those benefits and decide overall if that is a program that is that we think is as good or as exciting as
1: Bennett's or DeWorming.
2: Great. And what about you, Sarah? So that's uh, uh, what Chelsea's working on.
1: Yeah. So I've been I've done a bunch of different stuff since I started, um, and we're still trying to. Kind of figure out what I like and where I'm going to fit in. I think um, long term. So I've worked on like top charities research. Um, so looking at uh, documents that we that a charity has given us um, when we have decided that they're promising enough to look into in detail. Um, so I've worked on um, like a document review for one charity, and then I'm about to start a phase two review of Sight Savers. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, did uh, kind of an, in- an initial review, um, and they gave us a bunch of documents at that point and um, So I'd say this a second is a one. deworming. So it actually is, has been around for a long time, and their focus um, has historically been on prevention and curing of blindness. Um, but more recently, they've moved into doing some deworming treatments, Um and running some deworming programs in the developing world. So those are the programs that we're looking at. They're deworming programs to see if they're competitive with the deworming charities that we recommend um, today. Mm -hmm.
2: And I just want to point out what's different about that work versus what Chelsea talked about, which is what Chelsea said is is intervention reports, which is looking, like with the voluntary meal circumcision, which is looking at whether a program separate from a charity is effective at improving people's lives. and then you're at the stage where we've decided a particular program, deworming, is effective and it is something we want to recommend, but now we have a lot of questions that are specific to this charity and whether or not we should recommend them. And so you're digging through the documents to decide whether SightSavers is good monitoring, is running the program well, is cost-effective to try yeah, to figure out
1: that's exactly whether right. we should recommend Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we already know that deworming is um, a highly effective and cost-effective treatment, and that's why we recommend to deworming charities today and um, yeah, this is a third contender that mm-hmm. might be um, competitive with those other ones. Um, and yeah, we we have a deworming intervention report um, that, you know, someone, I don't know, Josh wrote that or <laughs>
2: who wrote that? But... I think Alexander, actually. Oh, okay. I think it's one of the oldest uh, reports. Yeah. So that's a really... Um, well, and if you're looking internet, for a ripping raid, can
1: I highly recommend the Well Research Intervention Report page? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good illustration of like how we do our top charities work. It's this mm-hmm. layered approach where we establish first that an intervention is um, effective and cost-effective, um, and then we look for charities that are doing that work. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's one big piece of work that I've been doing, um, and... Uh, I guess there are a couple of others. I'm doing a lot of like writing projects for Open Philanthropy. Um, so we make grants through Open Philanthropy Project, um, and then we write up uh, the reasons that we make those grants um, and publish those on the website. And so I'm working on some of those write-ups to explain like the rationale for our grant-making. Um, and the reason we publish those write-ups is...
0: Uh, because one of Open Philanthropy's core values is transparency. So we think that a lot of other foundations are quite opaque in the way that they make decisions, and we want to, uh, both for the philanthropic community and for potential grantees, make clear what our thinking process is in
1: um, in giving grants. Yeah, and try to encourage other um, organisations to do the same.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and for some... Context, in case people don't know, the Open find Free Project is a project that sort of incubated within GiveWell and is, is now on its way to becoming a separate organization where we're trying to answer some more question of how do you give away money as effectively as possible, but more focused on foundation-size giving, so so big grants, particular opportunities, and, and looking at a broader set of things.
1: Yeah, and I think of it as our high-risk, high-reward side mm-hmm. um, Whereas GiveWell, you know, is low risk because we've thoroughly vetted it, right. vetted the charities, um, and we know, you know, we're pr- very confident about what's going to happen with the money that goes to those charities. Whereas for Open Phil, I think, you know, we're open to things that may not pan out, like, mm-hmm. but if they do, would have potentially very high rewards, um, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also do a lot of, like, I guess broadly speaking, uh, operations work. Um, So I've been doing some legal projects here and there um, and working on, like, trying to help um, figure out how we can make our staff more diverse um, through recruiting. Um, And I've actually also been working a lot on getting the next version of our website ready to launch, uh, which we hope to do in the next
2: month or two. Oh, great yeah how is that going or, or what are you doing on the website i know that's just a big project that's been sitting for a while because it got deprioritized for for other stuff and so now are you just trying to shepherd that forward so it gets yeah. launched
1: yeah i'm basically project managing it so i'm working with our um contracted web developer mm-hmm. to uh, we have a working beta version um that's Pretty decent, but you know there are a lot of errors, a lot of bugs. There's also some missing content. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to be writing a new quick start guide. It's kind of like our giving 101, um, and actually, Cat Hollander, Catherine Hollander, is going to be writing that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm just figuring out, you know, what are all the issues that we need to fix, and then I'm working with John, our developer, to fix them. Or in some cases, I'm just fixing stuff myself if it's really simple Um, yeah
0: and that's exciting in that like we that is the porthole through which everyone actually gets to see GiveWell, and I think we've appreciated for some time that it's perhaps not the most beautiful or easy to navigate
2: (laughs) yeah it looks like it was made in 1994 (laughs) and not updated since then and so yeah that's true yeah I think so it's exciting that we, we might have a new fresh new website
1: yeah then again you know the the current website is like is good enough you know like everything's there you can find it if you try (laughs) um so there's a high bar like the new website needs to be you know pretty not perfect but close to it um before we switch over and
2: i think we have a design challenge in that we really value our sort of thoughtful academic thorough reputation and so as boring as the really long reports can, can appear. It's also, like, that's they are the highlight of what we're producing, which is lots of very detailed research. Mm-hmm. And so presenting that in a way that seems compelling and interesting and fun to click around, but doesn't take away from the fact that we're trying to highlight these very long, very detailed research reports, I think, is, is a little bit of a challenge.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and actually, honestly, the, the new website is mostly a facelift. I mean, we're mm-hmm. not, you know, we're still going to be publishing... Just as much as we have um, historically, and that's been one of the challenges. That there's so much content on the site yep. that, like the design firm that we worked with originally, um, you know, I think they did not realize what a big project it would be or mm-hmm. how complicated it would be to design it and and code it. And so it took them a lot longer than they expected, um, just because <laughs> there's so much <laughs> stuff on there. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting.
2: Great. Well, that is just about wrapping up the time. Any other thoughts from either of you?
0: And then there was silence. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, if the, if the big question is, like, what's it like to work at GiveWell, I think there is something really exciting about getting up in the morning and thinking, all right, I do this, like, really cool thing with a bunch of people that I respect and think are really kind, uh, and I get the sense everyone here is here because
1: they feel that way as well so yeah that's really nice that's definitely true and just to kind of i guess um you know put the other book bookend on my discussion about leaving my old job and everything um i'm really glad i did you know this is what i was looking for so i'm um, very happy that i made that decision
2: well glad to hear it and really glad to have both of you here and thanks to both of you for sitting down and talking with me on a recording today you're welcome. It's
1: great. Thank you.
2: And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about GiveWell, more information and all of our research can be found on our website, givewell.org.